Today's episode is brought to you by Yelp, whose mission is to connect people with great local businesses. They're also helping me connect with you, which is totally awesome. Now here we go. And if you wanted to do fine dining and high-level food, it had to be that way. People had to be scared in the kitchen. They had to be scared to come to work. Like, I was terrified going to work every day. I would have, like, a knot in the pit of my stomach, not knowing what service was going to be like, what the day was going to be like. Some days I'd be riding my bike to work and be like, oh, man, wouldn't that be great if I got hit by a car and I wouldn't have to go to work? Welcome to Full Comp a show offering insight into the future of the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. On today's show, we chat with Chef Joe Sosto, a renaissance man charting a new path in the industry through pop-ups, pasta classes, and underground events. We've had months to discuss what we miss about working in restaurants. What don't we miss? What parts of us and this industry should we leave behind? Let's begin with a glimpse into how working at the top levels of this industry impact your mind and your soul. How many Michelin rated restaurants have you worked in? Two, but I mean, that was the majority of my career uh, between Lazy Bear and Quince. Uh, Mm -hmm. I was at Quince when they had one star left once we had three. So kind of saw that whole progression and the process of gaining, going from one to two and two to three. And that was, uh, I think, completely shaping kind of my whole viewpoint on cooking and being in a kitchen, my career. Um, And then from there left to go to Lazy Bear right after they got their first star um, and then that next year we got our second, um, and I stayed with them, uh, through that time until moving down here to LA. Well, and I wanted to talk about that specifically because I know it's a big part of your career. Um, how did, how did working in an environment where the execution was at that level influence you both personally and professionally? Um, I think like those two restaurants shaped me in positive ways, but completely differently. So like when I working at Quince was like what you could imagine a high stress restaurant kitchen is like, where there is this high kind of like, this almost like stress is like you could cut it with a knife. Just there's so much tension in the air. Everybody's walking on eggshells. No one wants to make a mistake. Like the stakes are so, so high. And that was my whole introduction to cooking in Michelin starter kitchens. And so yeah. I thought that was the way it was, that if you wanted to do fine dining and high level food, it had to be that way. People had to be scared in the kitchen. They had to be scared to come to work. Like I was terrified going to work every day. I would have like a knot in the pit of my stomach, not knowing what service was going to be like, what the day was going to be like. Some days I'd be riding my bike. Uh, to work and be like, oh man, wouldn't that be great if I got hit by a car and I wouldn't have to go to work? <laughs> like that's how crazy you think when you're in that environment. And I was like, that'd be so much better than like potentially having a bad service. Which like saying it out loud now, looking back at it, is like, what the hell's wrong with me? But that was kind of like the atmosphere that and the culture that we had at that time, and that was all I knew. And I didn't know any better. And that was, I thought, the way it was supposed to be. And then it was after leaving there and going to Lazy Bear, I saw almost the complete opposite 
culture and the complete opposite atmosphere. And so that was kind of like this turning point in my career and in my leadership style and the way that I kind of approached running a kitchen where we were listening to music all day, all night, people were laughing, having a good time. That same level of detail and attention and focus was still there. And we were getting recognized for cooking really awesome food and providing a really incredible experience. But there didn't need to be this level of fear and stress associated with work and with putting out that kind of food. Like we were doing, you know, high-end dinner parties every night. And it was like kind of a party. You know, we were having a good time doing it. We are enjoying it. And I started to see how that then translated into the food and the experience we were giving, where if a cook or a server or a food runner or whoever it is is having a good time, what they're doing, that goes into the food. Like you could taste fear, you could taste stress, you can taste like happiness. And it maybe sounds weird to say, but when you've been doing this as long as I have, like you could totally taste those things. And if you're putting love and happiness into the food that you're making, like we were doing there, like the guests can feel that it's palpable. They could eat it, they could taste it. Like they're just surrounded by this like aura of good energy. And I think it was that, then I realized you could still execute at a Michelin star level and get recognition for it while not running a militaristic style kitchen. Well, and to build off that, I, you know, one of the secret sauces in my own life has been mentorship. Just being able to learn from amazing people. Um, who have been the mentors in your life and the lessons learned from that? Um, you know, I think the first chef like that I had was uh, this, this guy named Jason Berthold. And that was back at RN74, one of the first kitchens I worked at in San Francisco. It was like a French brasserie kind of thing. And he was, he worked at the French Laundry. Uh, he was like really good friends with Corey Lee. And he helped Thomas Keller open Per Se in New York City. So he like came up in the French Laundry School of Thought, that very militaristic, like super French kitchen. Um, went to New York City, helped Thomas open um, Per Se. Did that with Corey, came back to San Francisco and took over RN74 and kind of took that approach to not as highly acclaimed of a restaurant, but still ran the kitchen with that same level of um, love and passion and kind of, you know, leading by example. And so he was the first chef I worked for that really, you wanted to work hard and do well, not because you were scared of disappointing him or that you'd get in trouble. You wanted to succeed and put your best foot forward because you wanted to make him proud. And it was kind of that this level of respect that he just commanded from everyone in the entire restaurant without even asking for it. And it was just kind of like he led by example and it made everyone around him want to be better and be better versions of themselves and come in every day better. And I think that really kind of was still I think about him when I'm leading a kitchen and when I like have a team and I'm trying to motivate and inspire them and you know I think back to him because that was I think my first impression of someone leading by example and being that role model uh, in a kitchen that is not always easy to do a lot of times you'll see chefs they get the title and they think that comes with respect but it's kind of the other way around in my opinion like the chef chef is just the word it doesn't really mean anything the people that call you that because they feel you're a chef is really what kind of gives power to that title. And he was like the first example I think I saw of that. Let's fast forward. 
It's now June 2016. You just won Aspen Food and Wine. You have the opportunity to capitalize on that amazing victory. What was what was the idea there? So that that's kind of a good transition. So we did Cochon. That was coming. I was still working at RN74 at that restaurant. We did Aspen Food and Wine. We won that competition, um, and it was great. But at the same time, working at a restaurant like RN was turn and burn. We were looking for numbers. We were trying to like push the cover count every night, trying to do two, three, four hundred covers, like grind it out. Let's see how much we could do. And I knew there was more to cooking than that. I hadn't experienced it. I had heard of this thing called the Michelin guide. I was like still young and you know, this is before the age of social media. So it wasn't like you could go on your phone and look at pictures and menus and experiences of other restaurants. You kind of just hear about it and read about it and you get a cookbook and look at it and you're like, Oh my gosh, this is crazy. How do they do that with tweezers? Like, you know, it was kind of like blowing my mind. And so I wanted to regroup. I took a trip to Europe, spent eight weeks backpacking through Europe with my two brothers. And then coming back, that was kind of like my reset point. I knew I wanted to get into Michelin starred kitchens to see what that's like. I wanted to do tweezer food. I wanted to do less covers and more focused about the food and really kind of hone in and refine my technique as the chef. Well, and to, to build off of that, it, that kind of illustrates that you have an unconventional mindset towards the industry, right? Um, let's, let's dig into that and talk about like the idea of pop-ups versus a brick and mortar. Lord knows if you wanted to open a brick and mortar, you could get financing tomorrow, but that hasn't been the path that you've chosen for yourself. Right. I think it's, it's an interesting path that I'm on because I didn't set out to do it this way by any means. And it kind of has just happened. And I'm grateful for the opportunities that it keeps happening and these doors keep opening. And I, it's definitely not easy. I think a lot of people look at doing pop-ups and events and all of that is almost like an easier alternative to working in a restaurant or for having a brick and mortar. And it's definitely not. There's less stability, there's less sureness and certainty of what the future has, where if you have a brick and mortar or you're just working in a brick and mortar, you know essentially what every day is going to be like for the next couple of months, for the year, for that matter. And when you're in this kind of nomadic style of cooking, doing pop-ups and events and traveling, it lends itself to kind of push your creativity and push what you think of dining and cooking and kind of put you in this whole new frame of mind. And I think that's kind of where I am. And I didn't set out to be in this place, but I'm excited to be here because I think this is a great direction to kind of take myself into the future. Well, what are you working on now? Now, like amidst COVID-19 <laughs> well, and just like prior and coming out of it and now. So, I mean, my, my vision had always been to settle down and open restaurants and I have concepts in mind and I know what I want to do. And, you know, it had always been finding the right market. I think that that's always been my biggest hurdle because I know what I want to do. I have this goal set of opening a, no, a couple of restaurants and different things, but finding the right place to do it, I think is everything because your neighborhood determines your success. If you're opening something that doesn't belong in that neighborhood, you're going to have a really hard time. You're going to struggle from the moment 
you open your doors, maybe even before you open your doors, if people don't want you there. And so, you know, moving down to LA, I thought it was going to be LA. You know, it's a great city to visit. I haven't minded living here for the past three years, but I don't want to like plant roots and like start a family and a brick and mortar in a business. And that's kind of, it's not my scene. And I just don't feel necessarily at home here. I think it's way too much city for me. I'm more of like, I need to be closer to nature and less of the concrete. Um, but so this whole kind of series of traveling and getting around the country and seeing other places and other things has really kind of been able to allow me to grow and think really hard and deeply about what kind of markets I would want to open in, where I would want to settle down. And I think now I have a better vision and understanding of what I want to do, how I want to make it happen. And now it's just a matter of timing and making sure that it makes sense. You watch on the news and you see that a lot of people are talking about a mass exodus from large cities uh, because it is so expensive to live here. It is so difficult to do business here. Uh, did that play into the decision? And what markets are you thinking about? Um, Portland, actually. I really like uh, the culture, the area, um, the people. And then when you're thinking about being a business owner and operator, you have to think about all these other things that people often don't like the consumer. They don't realize the cost of entry and the barriers of entry into some of these other markets. Like, you know, people out there may not realize that the cost of a liquor license in San Francisco can cost up to $750,000. Like that's three quarters of a million dollars just on a liquor license to be able to sell booze, not anything else to do with the restaurant. Mm-hmm. And like when you kind of break it down like that, that's just insanity. Like, are you, you're almost setting yourself up for failure or a very small margin for success versus you look at another market somewhere like, you know, Hartford, Connecticut or Portland, Oregon or something. You could get a liquor license for 500 bucks. Mm-hmm. And then like you start looking at like the cost of rent, the cost of goods, the cost of labor. And all those things, when you're a business owner, you need to start to take into consideration. I mean, you know that this business in this industry is designed on razor thin margins, which is, you know, I think coming to light even more so now and more people are realizing. But when you're trying to figure out where you want to settle down, I think all of that plays into a factor. Otherwise, you're not really thinking like a business owner. You're just thinking like, oh, what would I want to do like in a dream world? You know, and you can't operate like that. Have there been aha moments for you through this, you know, global pandemic that that have affected like your trajectory, the way you think about yourself, the way you think about the industry? Because Lord knows we're perpetually in hustle mode. And this has been an opportunity to reflect. I've always realized that sharing my story has been influential and inspiring to more people than I ever could have realized or imagined. I mean, I saw that the first time around when I did Top Chef, the number of people that reached out after I shared my story and my you know, the loss of my mother and kind of how I've gotten to where I am today. So many people could relate with that or they use that as a point of inspiration or they just, you know, it was cathartic for them to hear. And now I think especially being at home and everyone being at home and everyone kind of using social media and food as that medium to connect through the more and more I share the realize the more and more I can inspire people. And at the end of the day, I think that is one of the most important things. Like the fact that I could use a platform to connect with others 
and use food as that common ground because we come from completely different walks of life, potentially. And, you know, we both see each other and can feel better about life and the future and where we're going all just by sharing our experiences. When you look at the industry and you look at the trajectory and the path forward, what positive and negative changes do you see? The industry itself, I have an opinion on that is kind of like a love-hate thing. It's the only way I've known. It's the only jobs I've known. Like I've had other small jobs like in high school or like college, but I've only ever worked like the 16-hour days, seven days a week, always on holidays. Like I don't know the nine to five, five days a week lifestyle. So I have no point of comparison. So it's like, I know that this is the industry and this is the way that it is, but now it's coming more and more to light. And even over the past couple of years, now that I've been out of a traditional restaurant, how important it is to have a work-life balance, how important mental health is, how important physical health is, and how there needs to be this balance between the way things were and the way that we rebuild it in the future. And I think this is a huge opportunity and turning point to not go back to the way it was. I know a lot of restaurants and businesses were already kind of making that transition and they felt the same way and we're understanding that, you know, we can't operate long-term with these kind of structures that we've built that are not in favor of the employees. And really, I think those are the most important people in any operation, whether it be a restaurant or a business in general. The employees are what make it happen, regardless of what you're selling. So putting them first and foremost, I think, needs to be a priority moving forward, no matter what happens. And I think kind of taking that approach and using this time to reflect on that and how we can make whatever we rebuild better for them will in turn make a better final product and better industry for the consumer, regardless of what or where it is. You know, we, when you envision your own restaurant, what are the fundamental changes that you would make? You know, I, I really want to empower employees. I've worked for enough places where the employees don't necessarily have power and they're the ones that are dealing with the systems that have been put into place. And they know best if something's not working or not making sense or why are we doing it this way? And I think it's really important to give them a voice and an opportunity to be heard and to make positive changes for the business, to be fluid, to be dynamic, to not be stuck and set in rigid ways of thinking or thought because that's the way that you've always done it or that's the way you think it's supposed to be. I think being able to adapt and to quickly pivot is going to be a fundamental part of success in any business. I think having a balance of a fast casual model is part of the future. I think fast casual definitely lends it has its pros and cons. And there's always going to be a place for the traditional dining model because people that's what they're used to and that's what they want. And sometimes that's why people go out to eat alone is for that experience. But also being able to kind of weave in whether it be one concept fast casual and one concept traditional fine dining or whatever you want to call it having that balance and kind of ebb and flow between the two to make your overall business more of a success and more stabilized, I think will, um, you know, be something that I'm looking for when I finally make the move to do this. 
everyone's asking how restaurants are going to change. No one's really talking about how the patrons are going to change, right? Because we're, we're working in an untenable situation. And, you know, we've, we, historically, we as an industry have charged what they're willing to pay, right? And, and so now we find ourselves in a situation where in order to get back to work, I believe that there has to be a realignment of either the amount of money patrons are willing to pay or their expectations relative to the experience. Otherwise, I really don't know how we're going to make this thing work. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think my biggest concern right now, because I haven't thought about it the way you just phrased it. What I've thought about is down the road, how long, not even how long, what is it going to take for people to be comfortable going back to the old way of being in a crowded room surrounded by people laughing, touching, speaking closely. And, you know, it's almost like that conditioning theory of communication. Like we've been conditioned now for long enough to set a habit based on what science says that we're not supposed to be near each other. We're not supposed to touch each other we're not supposed to be around each other and how long then and what would it take to get people to kind of unlearn those habits and be comfortable with going back to the old ways. And I think that is like the biggest concern to me. And then it's like, okay, so do you start looking at concepts or models that are smaller in scale, gone are the ways of large restaurants or do they need to be large to keep everyone apart? And I think there just been so many different considerations from that viewpoint alone, that you know, makes there so much uncertainty. And I don't know what it would say. Is it a vaccine? Is it just time? Is it protocols in place? I don't know, but that's like where my head is at looking at it. And I think that in itself starts a bigger conversation for the future of dining. One of the things you brought up earlier was resilience. And, and, and I think it's worth going back to uh, yes, we're a very resilient industry, but I, I think now there's an opportunity to tell stories of overcoming huge obstacles in our lives, personally and professionally, uh, and the lessons that we learned from that. And I, I want this to be a platform for that. Do they have? Do you have any stories that come top of mind? Yeah, I think I think any adversary or tragedy can be looked at in two different ways. Like, I think a great example that I kind of think of is when I lost my mother to cancer. So she was always the biggest part of my life. She taught me cooking. She was my best friend. We would talk almost every day when I left for school. All through high school, I went to college. And then it was the summer after freshman year of college, she was diagnosed with lung cancer and passed away in three months. So it was just this tragic moment in my life, completely unexpected. And I didn't know where to move on or how to move on from that. And I almost didn't go back to school. I almost just decided to move home. I didn't really know what to do or what my career path was or how to kind of continue and move on. And, you know, I think I had two choices. I could have done the tragedy route and use that to define me in a very negative way or use that to motivate me to then find my path, use that to keep me connected to her and food became that way and cooking became that way that then I was able to move forward. And I think you could look at any tragedy like this and take that same approach. 
you know, food and cooking is going to be something that then we use to move forward from this. And do we want this to define us in a positive light or a bad light? You know, was this something that ruined the industry or is this something that made the industry better and something it could have never been had this not happened? It seems like such a dark shadow cast over us right now, but this could be, you know, the, the dark before the dawn. And all of a sudden on the other side of this, we're brighter and stronger and better than ever that we could have, couldn't have imagined. Like we may never have gotten to this point had this not happened. And as tragic and heartbreaking as all these stories and the time is now, you know, how we move forward from this, I think are really going to define the industry as a whole, not what's happening right now. I love that, man. Uh, through the podcast, you have the opportunity to talk to the entire industry. Is there anything you'd like to say specifically? You know, I wrote, so, like, I feel like if I could read your life, your path, your talent, your voice and your career can never be measured by, nor will ever be measured by one moment. We're here together during this time. If you're hearing this and you're in the restaurant industry, know that this time in history will never erase the amount of time you dedicated to your craft and everything you had sacrificed in the past for your love of cooking. If you're unable to do so right now, know that you will cook again for others. When you cook, you give someone a part of yourself you'll be able to share that with others, bring joy to others and happiness and love again. And I think that like, to me, that like gives me goosebumps. Like that is what people need to hear and know that that's the case. Like there's so much sadness and uncertainty out there, but I think hearing that and knowing that this isn't going to define us, we're still going to get back to work and get to do what we love. And that's what the future has in store for us. That's Chef Joe Sosto. To check out what he's working on next, go to joesosto.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, check out our video content, or read our weekly blog, go to joshkopel.com. That's J-O-S-H-K-O-P-E-L.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.